HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. From simple to gourmet, nothing's fresher or tastier in recipes than homegrown, fine-ripened veggies and savory herbs. Do you grow your own? With Bonnie Plants, a kitchen garden at your back door or in containers can produce an amazing harvest for cooking and for sharing. Find how-tos, plans, and more at bonnieplants.com. Your recipes might not change, but your results sure will. Fresh, healthy Bonnie veggies and herbs. Get growing. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, when we think about German food, we usually think about beer and sausage and pretzels. And oh, I just did a show on pretzels a couple of weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. And cheese, Limburger cheese. I mean, what, what do you really think of when you think of German food? Well, certainly today's residents of Germany do not exist solely on bratwurst, if that's what you were thinking. <laughs> but what is their cuisine and how did it evolve? My guest today is very well versed on being able to answer that and that she is Ursula Heinzelmann. Ursula is a Berlin-based journalist and author specializing in food and wine and is an independent scholar of food history. In addition, she trained as a professional chef and ran her own Michelin-starred restaurant on Lake Constance and trained as a sommelier as well as building up a wine and cheese business. She knows a thing or two about food. All right. And then as her interest in food history began, she became a regular contributor at the Oxford Symposium on Food and Culture. And I am very, very pleased to have Ursula with me today. She has just published... She's and I forgot to mention, in her in her authorship role, she has written several books in German on different topics, cheese and, and other things. But um, in English versions, what is available is her book on food and culture in Germany and a brand new book, which is hot off the press, called Beyond Bratwurst, A History of Food in Germany. Welcome, Ursula. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Well, tell me, you know, we do... We do think of those foods that I mentioned as being, ah, oh, yeah, German foods. And they are, and they are. They are, certainly. 
Um, and in this book, what I love about your new book is that you you have written a couple of paragraphs that state what culinary history is, and I, and I differentiate that from actual just food history, even though we like the, we like the two lines to merge as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But you describe food history as uh, food being more tangible than abstract history, and that history not only shines a light on who eats what, how, where, and when, but also illuminates the production and the selection and the preparation and presentation, as well as the practicalities surrounding it. And it's all those practicalities surrounding it that we like to consider culinary history. And and, and that is really a, a very well-written description of what culinary history is. People so often say, well, what? What really is culinary history? We live it every day. There you go. And if you if you don't know a culture's food, you don't know that culture. That's right. And um, it's a neat way to find out who you are yourself, who are the others. And um, that's what I've actually done in that book. That was my um, task, um, was to find out through food what being German actually means. Well, you did, you did say, and I would, I would say you argue, that Germany has no single national cuisine or national dish. True. Okay, <laughs> well, uh, come on, expand on that one. <laughs> it would make our life so much easier. You know, people all the time, people visiting from, yeah, from, from New York, for instance, and they say, so what should we eat? What is it? Um, if we do a typical um, German meal, what should we have? You could have all kinds of things because, um, as you say, there is no single national dish. I mean, I, I come from Berlin and we are kind of, I almost want to say, burdened with currywurst. <laughs> I did do a show on that, and I was so I was shocked to hear about the curry. Well, yeah, I like rather it. mention it first myself, so that it doesn't come up, and we've, we've dealt with it. Yeah, and we curry hot do. dogs for those of you. Well, a bit like it, yeah. It's not nothing to be particularly proud of. I guess like a hot dog in New York, you eat it when you're hungry. A, a curry. I, when you go to, if you go to Berlin and you want to experience currywurst, um, you better have a drink or two or perhaps even three. <laughs> and then late at night was the British, what the British call when the munchies kick in, then you ought to go and have a currywurst standing up in the street. Um, late. Then it's fine. Yeah. But it's yeah. nothing more than that. So why don't we have a single national cuisine? Why don't we have a single national dish? Because Germany, as it is, um, first hasn't existed for such a long time. We only um, became really one country in after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. Before that was, was a patchwork um, of, well, immediately beforehand, about 35 separate political units. Um, Before Napoleon, it was even a larger number. So you can imagine it was like the United States of America, except they weren't united. Right. So they all, there was, uh, they they all did their own little thing. And we had a lot of regional, and we still have a lot of regional cuisines. Um, with all those layers, as you mentioned, um, a cuisine is built um, a very, if we look at food um, on the plate, 
um, and you really start to think of it, um, you very quickly link into historical stuff, economical stuff, social um, dimensions. Political. Political, <laughs> exactly. Food, and that's why it is such a neat entrance point, because it leads you to all of life, all to everything. That's right. Um, and when you... Um, You said that you can trace German food waste back quite a ways, but you were just talking about the patchwork. And in speaking with Rachel Loudon, mm -hmm. um, her mm -hmm. book on, on cuisines and empires, obviously these different pockets of things that were going on, as you mm -hmm. say, before Germany became unified, obviously there was a lot of migration of peoples from Well, that is the other, other point. It's not only that we were not a political unity, it's also that... If you look at Germany, it's in the center of a continent, right bang on in the middle. It is, so it means that means that over the ages we had people from all sides going through, and they all left a little mark. They all brought because when people travel or migrate, they take their food with them. That's right, and they leave a little. Um, so they leave their traces. Then um, Germany is also, you know, between the cold north, the warm south. Um, it is between Slavs and Roman influences. It's between, it has the sea in the north, it has the Alps, the mountains in the south. So there is an immense diversity, which also means that it very much depends where you are looking and you find, of course, um, signature dishes everywhere. Yes. Well, we, you know, we know, and when we study um, food history so often, of course, we go to the the larger group definition, that'd be the Roman mm -hmm. Empire. Well, but you say that the that the German foodways, once again, can be traced much further back. So well, how different, and obviously I'm thinking geographical, of course, but mm -hmm. then so many of the other areas that we um, study within the Roman Empire. What what makes the German what makes the German food German? What makes that area different throughout history? <laughs> that is a tricky question because yeah. as we just <laughs> well, this kind of question is always um, easier answered. The more more easily answered when you zoom out. The more you zoom out, right. the easier it is um, to see what actually makes a place tick or what's the food that defines it. Well, obviously, we have the first. Let's let's because culinary history, not, the first written source about German food is a Roman historian, um, Tacitus, from the first um, century of our, um, what do you call it, of our era. era. Um, and he, in his, in his um, work, Germania, he talks about us Germans, barbarians, obviously. <laughs> um, he never traveled to Germany, by the way, if we want to call it Germany. But he has reports, and, and he says, well, there are those really strong, wild people up there in the northeast, and which, by the way, was also Germania, large Germania, was the, the area the Romans could never conquer. So right. we have a little political <laughs> agenda going on here. And um, he says, and they survive on wild fruit they gather um, in the woods, and they eat um, fresh game, which from his point, from a Roman point of view, is very barbarian because meat needed to be hung, not consumed fresh. 
Um, and they eat lac concretum. And that is, of course, for me as a cheese person, very interesting because lac concretum, which means literally translated solid milk, um, would be something like quark or for Americans, farmer's cheese. Although farmer's cheese, I have an issue there. This is yeah. not exactly mm. almost quark. <laughs> um, or something like um, Icelandic skier. Mm -hmm. So it's right. um, more solid than yogurt, different cultures. And he, he says, and we drink a lot of um, a wine-like beer. So you have pretty much all the elements you have mentioned in your introduction. <laughs> all this Oktoberfest stuff is already there. But the Lac Concretum is also interesting um, This because... Again, it's a barbarian, uncivilized way to consume your milk because the Romans, of course, already at that point made their cheese with rennet. So you have, yeah. Just for, uh, so all the all the prejudices were coming into play. As, exactly. But as well as every as prejudice well as has a historical a, basis. <laughs> exactly. The interesting thing about this is that Tacitus had a, an a another agenda going on because he was also saying something like well my fellow Romans they are those people we can't conquer there must be something right in a way they are natural they already we see this this longing for naturalism for uh, a way of life a food way of life that is nearer to nature as much as it is kind of a little scary because it's so uncivilized but it's Mm, there's something in there. <laughs> but yes, they did harness fire and they, <laughs> and they did know how to grind grain and cultivate it. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was a civilization. It was, it was not totally uncivilized. <laughs> well, we seem to have come a little way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, in, you talk about um, in this history of, de of, the, of developing, a, a developing cuisine, even though there, wait, there's no cuisine. No, in the, <laughs> but in, and that's part, and this is part of the fact that there's no cuisine, but there is a cuisine. But you talk about the layers, yeah. layers of cuisine. Well, it's, it's not that there is no cuisine. There are so many cuisines. That's the point. I would say it, the, the defining, if I had to define German food, it would be diversity always mm. through all the time when you look at it it's always diversity in under so many aspects um, and that's what also makes German defines German food today and it's not only that if you live in the north you prefer different food to somebody living in the south of Germany it's also that today I might eat I don't know, bratwurst and sauerkraut. And tomorrow or even tonight, I'm happy eating sushi. And this mm -hmm. is two different identities in myself. And it's this openness, I think, and this inclusiveness which makes German food ways, which defines and um, informs German food ways. Which you today. say have, has been going on. For centuries. and Yeah, we built up, I think, what in the end, although, of course, there were different, we all know about very different um, periods and throughout German history. But altogether, when you look back, and that's what the research for this book made me very aware of, is we have been in some rather good at welcoming and taking in and including all those layers and building 
letting them build up, so to say, um, so that nowadays that's what we stand on uh, in terms of food, so to say. A very diverse culinary background. Right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, we're going to talk more about how this has evolved and how what modern-day food is like as well when we come back after a real short break. back on A Taste of the Past, and I am talking with Ursula Heinzelman, who has just published a book called Beyond Bratwurst. Yes, indeed, there's food beyond bratwurst. (laughs) (laughs) We don't eat bratwurst every day. (laughs) A history history of food in Germany. And, you know, we were talking about, um, Ursula, about uh, different influences that that had an effect and left a lasting um, effect. And, of course, there are always the, the usual markers or game changers throughout culinary history or history in general um, you know wars um, religion famines. famines big big part famines huge um, but one that has um, quite an interesting effect and you say a parallel uh, to American culture and that is industrialization talk about that and how that what how that has left a, a particular effect well um, industrialization is very important um, German food history because um, we were clearly lagging behind if you compare it to England we were really late to the game with industrialization um, it only set in really set in in mid 19th century when we had finally done away with feudalism and um, we could move onward a bit um, but then it, somehow this um, <laughs> um, German um, proverbial efficiency set in <laughs> and we caught up really quickly and um, Berlin at then in the second half of the 19th century was um, the fastest growing city in the world um, we grew as fast as northern American cities Chicago because of course industrialization goes hand in hand with urbanization which means the whole food game changed because people who had before living in the countryside, living, uh, making a living in agriculture, um, moved to the cities, and you had suddenly you had those big um, conglomerations which you had to feed completely differently, right. but which you also could feed differently because um, technology developed at that point so rapidly. When we think about, um, it's really it's it, when you look at it and you look at the numbers. Um, they're crazy. Um, how transport, modern transport, um, for instance, um, trains developed. How modern technology, such as um, refrigeration, refrigeration huge. developed. Yeah. Um, and that meant, for instance, <laughs> for cheese, 
um, until roughly speaking, until the mid 19th century, there was not a lot of milk around. Um, so to say, it, cattle were mostly for were working animals, and they were for meat uh, in Germany. And milk was a little side thing. Um, so we there there wasn't there were only traditional cheeses developed only in the Alps where you couldn't do anything other with the land you had to use it as pastures and we have those traditional mountain cheeses and in the very north along the sea where the land was too wet to use it for anything else than pasture and where we brought in Dutch people who were experts in cheese making and so on but for the rest there wasn't really because also they didn't develop because they were interested in the meat and then the work animals they didn't really develop breeds which were good in giving a lot of milk suddenly they look to England in the mid 19th century and they say hey we could do a way much more with those animals and they developed a real dairy industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could you could think, or you would think, so that would be the moment, which would be late, but we could develop those rich cheese traditions like we see in France. It didn't happen because at the same time, engineers got really into the game and we became a bit like here in the US mm. I think um, very efficient in transforming this milk um, into cheese big business cheese big business <laughs> cheese exactly yeah. and nowadays today um, craft was born yeah. the US is the world's the world's largest cheese producer we are number two interesting yeah not really I mean yeah, we would be working on it. We're seeing an artisan yeah. cheese well, movement. Well, and now and in both countries, right? Exactly. This artisanal cheese movement where exactly. we're getting, you know, hand, you know, crafted cheese. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Real cheese. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what and now? What about um, the? Oh, we talked. We well, the Middle Ages was, as you say, Germany was not yet a unified country, but well, there were things going on then. Religion social stratification, as you point out, religion, social stratification, and medicine. Uh, the, the medievalists were, you know, had their theories on what to eat for what, what ails well, you, or what's good for you. Yeah, they are, they are, again, I mean, that's not my theory. Um, thesis is an old thesis that, right. of course, looking back at your past makes you understand so much more about the present and hopefully helps you about the future. Um there, when we nowadays, you know, we have all those health food stores and we worry about or think and discuss a lot what is good for you, what causes cancer, what is, we take those supplements and da 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 da. They did all that. Those, this humoral theory in medicine, medieval medicine, is nothing else. It's modern. It then it's the same thing than modern nutritionism. Right. So to well, there, say. I mean, there was really nothing known as or called nutrition then. I mean, this this was the nutrition. This was the yeah. nutrition, and I think um, if we would be able, if we could beam ourselves back, um, we would find those discussions very similar to today. Anything that you can trace back or that can be traced, not you particularly, but can be traced back, let's say, to um, the medieval times or even, you know, a couple thousand years ago, um, that ha- in that area, the German area mm-hmm. there, the, of, the, of the culture of food, that has um, continued 
survive. Can, yeah, survive. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there is, and it's it's really you have to. It's not always very obvious, but it can certainly be traced. And one is the the preference and liking for sweet and sour combinations. Mm. We still like, and that's what in in. In the Middle Ages, there wasn't such a neat difference between sweet and savory. You had combinations which, um, you know, you, you mix it all up, which sounds now derogative. It was not mixing it all up. It's it's us, rather, who've become more narrow in our thinking. Um, and so they always served something what we would think of as sweet, with meat, for instance, we still, I grew up, um, for Christmas wouldn't have been Christmas without a roast, without any, some kind of roast game, mostly venison. And traditionally, you would serve with that a poached pear and um, some cranberries, cranberry compote. And mm-hmm. that's exactly that, so that is, surviving that's, thing. And that is an interesting yeah, And we have, for another thing is, um, which I tried again recently in the kitchen and it works so beautifully is to use bread to thicken your sauces it's totally underrated nowadays it worked because i always thought when i trained as a chef and it was not in at all because that was nouvelle cuisine and used butter to (laughs) monte vos sauce and um Bread, I, I, I always assumed before I really tried it that bread would give you a grittiness in your sauce. It does not at all. It gives you a very beautiful and actually really light textured mm-hmm. sauce if you do it correctly. Italians knew it all along. And it was cucina <laughs> povera. And they did. They had breadcrumbs and they had what was left over. And that's what create their next dish you know but you're right it's well a- you see there is it's all interconnected yeah. because we had those roman conquerors and right. in the southern part of germany that's what they left yeah interesting okay now you say there is no national dish and yet you said this liking for the combination of the sweet and the sour and the savory mm-hmm. what about sauerbraten or sauerkraut <laughs> well i suppose well if you well Sauerbraten is a dish of the Rhine countries, the Rhineland. Oh, so here we get into the regionalities. And you do you do talk quite a bit in the book about the region. My mother, I grew yeah. up in Berlin. My mother would never, ever cook Sauerbraten. And it's also, in even in for a German person, it's often called Rheinischer Sauerbraten. Hmm. So this as a, it, you know, that's what I meant with zooming out. If you look at it from here, of course you find dishes which stand for Germanness in terms of food, but it's not a national dish as in everybody back home would eat it, right? Or, or prepare it. Um, sauerkraut probably is a good example, but then if you look at it, somebody in the north would prepare it and prefer it in a different way than down in the south. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, indeed why there is no, you mentioned before, no codified cuisine. There's not. True. And it's a small country, even so, but the regionality and the regional differences are, are still very great. And well, it's a small country, um, but it's very densely populated. Mm. 
and I think it's very diverse and not all those aspects. So Interesting. that's what makes yeah. for... So today, is there any one particular influence, let's say cultural, country, ethnic influence that has really taken the country by storm in terms of, of its food? I don't think that's possible anymore mm. because um, food is happening on so many different dimensions and, and layers and what we see is that finally um, we getting we're getting a different kind of Turkish influence in terms of food because um, for Growing a long population. time Turkish was Turkish was reduced to um, the immigrant workers um, who came from a different background than for instance I mean when you go to Istanbul you get completely different food than when you travel to eastern Anatolia where those families mostly came from and first there weren't even families who came to Germany there were just the men who were looking for work um, so and they they didn't really integrate um, in those first decades and now we are seeing a completely different um, how to encounter even between German and Turkish. And that's very beautiful, I yeah, think. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah. yeah. But I think what, uh, the parallels between, well, all countries, I mean, the, the world has become a much smaller place. As much smaller and a much larger yeah, exactly. at the same time. And yeah. I think that's a wonderful development. And we've, we appreciate the good things in other people's cultures. Yeah. And, and we want to adopt them. And Yeah. For instance, I've just written a Chinese cookbook mm -hmm. um, together with the best Chinese um, restaurant in Berlin called Hotspot because his, he does not only very good Chinese cuisine. I mean, Chinese, he does all kinds of, of course, because there is no such thing, again, right. as Chinese cuisine, obviously. Um, but he's also totally into German wine. So he has the most beautiful list of German Rieslings, which fit beautifully, beautifully with that. Yeah. And that's what I think is so great nowadays, that we are open to those all those different areas, and it's possible to bring them all together. New tastes, new horizons. And, of course, with travel, people today travel more readily, and they've been to a lot of these places, and they want, True. just like the immigrants and you know, or, or the remnants of war mm -hmm. centuries ago, now it's just because of travel, and people yeah. want to bring those experiences yeah. back. I think them, right? meeting and sharing, that's what food mm -hmm. is all about, Sh meeting people, getting to know their food, and sharing this food. Well, you do a wonderful job in describing all this in your book, and it is a treat to read it and certainly think about it. Think about it on, as you say, that zoom out on that larger scale, and you see, and I, I mean, I for one, see just in, in looking how you've divided the chapters up, so many parallels to so many other developed developing and developed cuisines mm -hmm. and it's it's really quite interesting you've shed new light on the topic well thank you so and much. i thank you very much for joining me and sharing your information ursula heinzelman and the book again is beyond bratwurst a history of the food of germany enjoy yes <laughs> indeed and you've been listening to a taste of the past thanks for listening thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. 
Thanks for listening.